Since 1984, Criterion Collection has been dedicated to publishing important classic and contemporary films from around the world in editions that offer the highest technical quality and award-winning original supplements. No matter the medium, Criterion has maintained its pioneering commitment to presenting each film as its maker would want it seen in state-of-the-art restorations with special features designed to encourage repeated watching and deepen the viewer's appreciation of the art of film. This is the Criterion Connection, where we journey through those films together by connecting them to each other through themes, cast and crew members, or other various elements. Welcome to the Criterion Connection, a podcast where two film lovers explore the Criterion Collection by connecting these iconic films to each other through the greater tapestry of cinema. Each week, we craft double features of films that are connected in some way to each other, be that thematically, through the artists, the decade, the artistic movement, and more. And the only caveat is that every film we discuss must be a part of the Criterion Collection. We also highlight new additions to the collection each month, great hidden gems on the Criterion channel, and more. As always, you know who I am. I'm Mackenzie, and this is my lovely co-host, Ian. Oh, Mackenzie, we're back. <laughs> we are so back. <laughs> we are so back. Uh, I'm thinking we're back. Oh, I'm thinking we're back. <laughs> and this week we're discussing, I have a meme of that where it's him going, oh, I'm thinking five stars for uh, for a letterbox. <laughs> I really love it. Um, <laughs> and speaking of maybe five stars i don't know uh we're talking about spine number 1003 a, a relatively recent addition to the collection uh an iconic 1950 academy award-winning film all about eve directed by the again iconic joseph l mankowicz mank but not mank not mank but not mank. i feel like i don't say that last name right but it's like one of the best last names ever it's like so i love the way it's spelled i love the amount of consonants in this name i love the z i love you know i really love the structure of the last name mankowitz mankowitz is a great name uh hands down um and maybe i'll talk a little bit about mank and what i watched this week but before we get to that <gasps> Mackenzie, what did you watch this week it's been three weeks we have a lot to pull <laughs> wow. from um, yes, we do. But yeah, I got to hear just maybe a smorgasbord of a small smorgasbord <laughs> of what you've been watching. Yes. Um, wow. That, well, that transition. We're right in it. We're in it. We're in it to win it. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, everyone knows I've been in a slump, the great slump of 2023 um, that we both have been in, I feel like. But we both kind of inadvertently jolted ourselves into director journeys uh in the last week or so um but and mine was pedro almodovar who is a director i really enjoy the films of and um all about my mother was an instant all-timer for me when i saw it uh parallel mothers was the first film i saw from him adored it i think penelope should have won the oscar that year um i i watched a few other films of his that i liked uh, i liked but they didn't quite reach all-timer status for me quite yet but he's a director i find infinitely interesting i love his influences and how he wears them on his sleeve i love his visual style his cinematography his production design all the reasons why people love pedro i love pedro and Mubi uh recently put up a uh just a 
smorgasbord as you said of his films pretty much most of his films pre-1999 uh excluding his two early features where he's in his more kind of john watersy boundary pushing era so they have everything post uh, labyrinth of passion uh and all the way up into and not including all about my mother sadly um and they have Volver though. Randomly, they have Volver, which is like the only film in the 2000s by him they have, which I uh, did not watch, but I will rewatch. And I, if that's like a movie you're looking to, like if you're looking to start with a Pedro movie, I actually think Volver would be a really great film to check out um, if you have Moopy. Um, but yeah, I watched six Pedro movies this week because I was like, let's Oof. do it. Let's get on a director. It was going to be either him or Billy Wilder. I've been craving a director journey. I think Billy's down the pipeline, but I, but movie really inspired me to just go for it because his stuff isn't streaming a lot. Like weirdly, he's a director who is like, I never see streaming pretty much ever. Uh, it's maybe all about my mother on the criterion channel. And that's pretty much it. Um, so I was just like, I need to take this opportunity to like watch these movies for pretty much free with my movie subscription. Um, so yeah, I watched a bunch. I recommend if you're interested in my takes on them, go to my letterbox and check out. He's a director who I was telling Ian in our DMs, he, I have really high highs and really low lows with him. So there was like two movies of this of his I gave two stars this week. They weren't for me. Um, but there was one that I want to highlight that I loved. It shot into my top three in my ranking of Pedro's films uh, called High Heels from 1991. Um, I love this movie. I've decided, looking at my top three, which are all about my mother, Volver, and High Heels, my favorite Pedro films are mother-daughter melodramas. Those are my favorite Pedro films. I like it when he's centering women and not necessarily um, the assault of women, which happens a lot in his films, which is like, okay, and it does happen in Volver. But um, I like it when it's more centered on the relationships between the women. And High Heels is sort of his version of Autumn Sonata, which I think is interesting. He is pulling from Autumn Sonata. He's pulling from Mildred Pierce. He's, again, wearing these influences on his sleeve because he literally has the daughter character be like, I feel like I'm in Autumn Sonata battling you my mother my whole life like he he has the characters just say i feel like i'm in this ingmar bergman movie so he, you know pedro oh, is saying gosh. this is the movie i'm doing by the way um and it's yeah it's about like a young woman who's been estranged from her mother since she was a child her mother is this flamboyant famous actress who left for mexico and kind of abandoned her daughter and now she's re-entering her daughter's life and her daughter's a young adult and her daughter married her ex-lover. So her daughter married her mother's ex-lover. And so now there's like this love triangle with the mother and the daughter and this man. But then the daughter is also having an affair with a drag queen who plays her mother on stage. So it's the gender and the kind of mind fuck like Oedipusy weird energy of mm. that, of like her having sex with uh, someone who plays her mother on, in, in drag performances. Um, and it's really just about this really complicated relationship between this mother and daughter. And I was stunned by it and the kind of turns it takes at the end, these emotional, I mean, that's what I love about Pedro. I love these huge emotional weighty scenes that he gets these powerhouse actresses to just chew on the scenery uh, marisa paredes is an actress who is in all about my mother as well i put this in another review of a film i watched her in of his well i could watch her read the phone book and uh be mesmerized for hours she is such a phenomenal actress and she plays the mother in high heels and she's 
she's phenomenal. And so, yeah, I, I definitely recommend this one. If you're looking to check out a pager, I would say this or Volver in terms of what's streaming on movie right now. If you have a subscription, you can watch it for free, but always I recommend all about my mother, a film I hope we cover one day, maybe on this podcast. Um, but yeah, I watch a lot of Pedro. Go to my go to my litter box to see all my takes. Uh, it's a really fun movie. I really, really dug it. Um, skip Kika. That's my big advice. Uh, I don't think anyone <laughs> needs to see that one. It's not that uh, good. Um, yeah. It's weirdly bad. Um, and <laughs> the other movie I watched this week that I'd love to highlight is I am trying a new thing where instead of putting pressure on myself to watch through a watch list or a director, I was like, I got to break on Pedro. I, gotta, I don't want to burn myself out. I need a break from Pedro. What else do I want to watch? So I went to the Criterion channel and went to their leaving at the end of the month section. I was like, well, let me see if there's anything leaving on September 30th that I might want to watch. And I honestly don't know what made me put this on, but I think it's one of those beautiful moments where the world just like gives you something you need at the exact moment you need it kind of. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it hit me in the same way a movie like a Harold and Maude or a Life Aquatic does where it just feels like it's shot directly into my soul on this day that I happened to put it on on a whim and I, I put on uh Wayne Wang's dim sum a little bit of heart that if you are as you're listening to this now in September of 2023 you have till the end of the month to check this out on the Criterion channel and I definitely recommend it uh it's a recent addition to the collection like it just got added I think like around the same time after hours did we talked about it on the show I believe and we mm-hmm. both were like I don't know what that is well, maybe yeah. I know what it is now. Um, and again, a mother-daughter story um, that is just kind of, it's just this soft, sweet, mid-80s indie. It, not even It's not even a comedy. It's not really a drama. It's just one of those kinds of films that is just existing. It's just people existing and thinking about growing older and what it feels like to be an older person growing older and also the younger person watching someone grow older and how to rejuvenate that kind of lust of life when you are entering maybe your twilight years and also having to learn it's about you know having to learn how to let go of your child and let them be independent and know that that's part of your growing up as a parent as well and like it's it's a lot of loaded themes all filtered through this chinese american family and it's so it has that specificity of culture that is also really beautiful and special uh while also having these like universal themes of parenthood and your relationships with your parents and it's not hammering you on the head it's just soft it's slow it's definitely one of those movies that feels like it's just put a camera up to uh people living their life and you get to just sort of be a voyeur in this life for a couple for a couple hours or even just an hour and a half it's 88 minutes it's super breezy it's very sweet uh i wrote in my review there was a there was a moment where it goes into a bit of a sad part and there was an actress who was wayne wang's wife i found out afterward uh and a pre and i guess she was miss hong kong for a while so like get it Wayne Wang um she's amazing in this film and she has a moment of uh grief and a line reading that is I I've never seen someone so specifically put an example of like a moment I've felt as a grieving person on screen like I watched that happen and I was like I've done that before and it's just like what a beautiful moment when an actor is able to reflect your life at least it feels mm-hmm. like your life so specifically back to you in a moment and uh the final moments of the movie like i can't even i just like i cried so much about this movie today because the final moments are filled with so much joy 
I could not believe it's just it's it's a movie that leaves you feeling good and it like it it tricks you into thinking it's gonna be sad like multiple times and it it just doesn't go there it's not about that it's about the love and the life it's not about the tragedy um uh and yeah it just I I don't know I just like hit me really deeply and I was so excited because I was like oh my god I get to go on Criterion Connection tonight and tell everyone to watch this damn movie (laughs) um so yeah like check out dim sum a little bit of heart on the criterion channel by the end of the month and if you miss it find it rent it go buy the criterion rent it from your library it's a lovely little movie um and i love that it's in the collection i love that it is just a little slice of life uh heartfelt movie that is a part of the criterion collection love it (laughs) i just rambled but ian i think you have been in a very (laughs) different place uh with your films than i've been so get get into it get into it Oh, geographically and tonally. Um, yeah. <laughs> yes. uh, so you've been getting into a lot more world cinema lately. I have like kind of uh, retreated back into the United States and there are two straight white male American auteurs <laughs> that are coming out with big movies at the end of this year. And I'm very excited for both of them. And I've been working my way through rewatching a bunch of their films and also watching a lot that I've missed uh, for the very first time. And those people are Marty Martin Scorsese and David Fincher. Um, And kind of rediscovering uh, my love for some David Fincher films and also kind of figuring out that I actually do like Martin Scorsese. If you've known me for a little while, you'll know that I've like kind of been like not exactly Martin Scorsese's biggest fan, but also like kind of ignorant about a lot of Martin Scorsese's like filmography. So I've seen like a lot of the mob movies. I've seen the movies that are about like machismo, which I'm not a huge fan of, uh, but I've delved into a lot of his films and I can say that I like, like some of those films that are about the mob. Like I watched casino gave it five stars. I watched the Irishman gave it five stars. Uh, but I've like really found that I like his movies about like sensitive weirdos. So that's like <laughs> after hours, the King of comedy, and um, my favorite of his, which I think is like most people's like bottom tier or at least mid tier. I've not seen a single person put this in their upper echelons of Scorsese rankings. And that is uh, his 2016 feature about missionaries, Jesuit missionaries going to Japan called Silence starring mm-hmm. Andrew Garfield. And um, yeah, no, this movie just like swept me uh, by storm. Like didn't know what to expect. I knew it was like Scorsese's meditation on faith, but I didn't know he was going to be channeling like Andre Tarkovsky and mm. just excavating his own personal demons, not just his like own conceptions and like dealings with faith, but like there's ideas in here about vanity and like, what do we owe each other? And also like white saviors and, you know, intruders into cultures and like, mm cultural appropriation it's just a really like well crafted film i don't know how else to say it it's incredibly well written it's intricate i know it's a film that he worked on for the better part of 20 years um and it shows it's also just one of the most beautiful films i've ever seen let alone i think martin scorsese's most lusciously photographed film like And when I compare it to Tarkovsky, like I'm comparing it to like Stalker, the greens and the browns and the blues and the clouds in the sky are just all so mesmerizing. And 
it's one of the, it's one of those films that looks like a painting. I'm sure this will also be true of Age of Innocence, his other like lush period piece, but I've yet mm-hmm. to see that. And um, you know, he's a very formal filmmaker for the most part, and this this felt different for him. Like it was still very formalistic in its actual execution, but there was something different about it. It was a little bit more expressionistic in in the final product, and I loved it a lot. Uh, you know definitely my favorite marty of all time i think i'm one of the very few people who would say that um wow i see a lot of people who say like oh this is number 12 for me it's still five stars but it's number 12 because hey it's it's martin scorsese um yeah absolutely love that um similarly david fincher is working through a bunch of films of his i don't think there's much i could say uh because these are thrillers um and i know i know I know. I hear you out there. I hear people yelling at me like thrillers still have a lot to say about the human condition, Ian. Um, (laughs) And these do. Like that's the interesting thing about David Fincher's films is even though they're um, taught, not tight, these movies are two, two and a half hours, but they're taught thrillers that like are always ratcheting up tension. They usually have something to say. I don't usually come out of most thrillers, even if they do have something to say, having a lot to say about them. I usually just Mm. go in for the, the, pure thrill of the thing but there were two and uh one's a film i've seen before that i think has a lot to say about gender and um like violence against women and i know it's like a really touchy subject for a lot of people myself included but like the girl with the dragon tattoo is a literary adaption by david fincher that i think is probably the most perfect thriller ever made um it's two and a half hours long so it's a long sit and if you wanted to you could play it out like a mini series you could do like three episodes of this thing um but i think Rooney mara gives one of the best performances i've ever seen in my life as elizabeth sandlander and it's it's just something else i don't have a lot of smart nice things to say about it but it is my favorite venture which again the main reason I bring it up is to just illustrate that a lot of people, I think, hold this film in the middle to lower tier of David Fincher films. It's my number one. I just have these hot takes on these these uh, great American auteurs, and I got to share them uh, so people can yell at me as they do. Notoriously, I recently re-logged Taxi Driver in the Discord that you and I are a part of, and I had it at three stars, and I re-logged it too, and I... I'm ashamed a little bit, but that's okay. It's funny because um, I've only seen two Fincher films. I got to be real. I've only seen two Fincher films. I might have seen Social Network when I was like in high school, but I don't remember anything about it. So pretty much only seen Fight Club and Seven. I, I think a hotter take you have is not that Girl with a Dragon Tattoo is number one, but that no. you have Alien 3 <laughs> above like Fight Club 7, yeah. Zodiac, and Benjamin Button, and Panic Room. Like you have Alien 3 above all of those. I think that's the hotter of the takes. I haven't seen any of those movies really, but I do know that I feel like culturally that is the hottest take you have about Fincher. No, no, no. Uh, fair enough. And, you know, I was going to try and get there eloquently, but you, as oh, always, Mackenzie, got me there. I no, you got me you there out. much better. No, this is such, such a better way to get me there because I wanted to talk about Alien 3 probably the most out of all these films that I've watched. Uh, you said best alien movie actually in your review? Yeah, sorry. My love, what? <laughs> um, I love Alien. I love the original Alien. I don't like Aliens. Um, mm, I've not seen that yet. I find, so it, yeah. I find it boring. I know it's your next one over on mm-hmm. Austin Danger Podcast because uh, for people who don't listen to Austin Danger Pod and what are you doing every time y'all get an alien film by the Holy Wheel to cover just go sequentially in the franchise so y'all will cover alien 3 one day 
but you're one away from that at the moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah, I think this is the best alien film. Um, not this, I'm not going to spoil anything, of course, because there are spoilers and I don't want to like do that. This isn't an alien three episode of the criterion connection. We shouldn't even be imagine? talking about the alien <laughs> franchise on this podcast, but here we are. Um, this is like a prison movie and it has a lot to say oh. about, about gender, about conformity, about the criminal justice system. And also like, uh, like bodily autonomy like there's a read on this that this movie is about like contraception and abortion without giving oh, okay. anything away uh it's a wild movie it takes wild swings and just has like crazy choices and also i think what's even more interesting and maybe a hot take mckenzie is i don't know i don't think you know this is that david fincher has disowned this film he fucking hates oh. it oh what? Uh, and it's rated so high on my list. Let me see my rankings real quick. It is number like, five out of eleven. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, and like Mackenzie said, I have it above Zodiac. I have it above Fight Club. Did two it, arguably best films of the twenty first century. Like I don't care for them. <laughs> did he? Did he do the like fake name thing? Because I know David Lynch tried to do that with Dune, where it like released under a. Uh, there's like some sort of pseudonym that studios used to be able to use for like directors who disowned formally their movies i think lynch eventually obviously his name's been put back onto it but i think the initial release uh what he did have the fake name or at least tried to have the fake name because he also disowned that film that's the only other time i've heard of a director doing that is that movie yeah no uh basically the alien franchise is known for this it was like a franchise for hot young auteurs and not hot in the attractiveness people just hot like they're hot they're <laughs> sexy sexy <yeah>. auteurs <laughs> ridley scott ooh, uh no um <laughs> no just like flashy young commercial directors getting their first shot at a film uh notably ridley scott james cameron and then david fincher he was a music video director he did stuff for madonna nine inch nails and it was his first feature it got taken away from him because he was young and what he decided after that was, I'll never make a movie where I don't have final say on everything ever again. He's notoriously a control freak. Um, All right. And the film was not a was not a hit, and it didn't do well critically. Um, and I think he just hated that. He was so mad. He's a, like I said, he's a control freak, and he just hated that the thing got taken away from him. I watched what's called the assembly cut, uh, which mm. I I briefly bonded with your other co-host over. We agree mm-hmm, the assembly mm-hmm. cuts the best, which I think is the widely accepted opinion. But basically, a lot of, I think, second unit directors and people at Fox went in and they referenced his notes and made the director this director's cut. It's called the assembly cut because it's not a director's cut because he refused to ever touch it ever again. That's like, so he funny. <laughs> hates it. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, Anyway, that's a long-winded discussion about the Alien franchise. It's what you come to the Criterion Connection for. <laughs> um, I've been having a lot of fun with Scorsese and Fincher. They've really like reinvigorated my viewing lately. Um, I've still got two Finchers to rewatch in the coming week. I will give uh, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button another rewatch and uh, The Perfect, The Social Network, uh, which... You need to you need to refresh yourself if you have seen it, Mackenzie. And if you haven't, you need to correct need that. To it. It's one of those films that people are like best film of the 2010s. I don't agree with that. There are way too many Paul Thomas Anderson films that came out in the 2010s for me to <laughs> agree with that. But it's a great movie, um, and I'm sure I'll talk about it 
with Next you week. or our lovely audience later. There's a great Broey Deschanel uh, video essay actually that just went out about like how does the social network age right now that we have different associations with Zuckerberg. Uh, and I thought that was actually a really interesting movie or, or video essay. So yeah, uh-huh. recommend that. Maybe I'll well, I'll double feature the movie and then the video essay the again. Essay. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But Benjamin Button's out. in the collection, right? So we could one day do Benjamin Button on this very podcast. I have checked out Benjamin Button from my library and the Criterion Edition. I'm very excited to delve into the supplements on there. Uh, but speaking of the Criterion Connection, <laughs> but speaking of the Criterion Collection, which we need to get back to, I think it's time. Mackenzie, we've been going on. It's been so long we haven't gotten to talk about what we've watched. Um, we've taken up a lot of time. We need to talk about our feature event today. Yes, Ian, would you please bring me into the world? of Margot Channing and Eve Harrington. In Joseph L. Mankiewicz's devastatingly witty Hollywood classic, Backstage is where the real drama plays out, One night, Margot Channing entertains a surprise dressing room visitor, her most adoring fan, the shy, wide-eyed Eve Harrington. But as Eve becomes a fixture in Margot's life, the Broadway legend soon realizes that her supposed admirer intends to use her and everyone in her circle, including George Sanders's acid-tongued critic, as stepping stones to stardom. Featuring stiletto-sharp dialogue and direction by Mankiewicz, and an unforgettable Davis in the role that revived her career and came to define it, the multiple Oscar-winning All About Eve is the most deliciously entertaining film ever made about the ruthlessness of show business. All About Eve. movie originally for our schedule i thought you hadn't seen it and i was like jokes on you but then jokes on me egg on my face uh you had seen it so ian what is your history with all about eve uh it kind of goes back to the days that i've actually talked about a little bit on the criterion connection when i had just gotten my subscription to the criterion channel it was going through some of the greats um it was probably a little bit later than when I watched The Red Shoes, than when I watched my first Omotovar film, or my first viewing of E Tu Mama Tambien, which all took place on the channel. Um, but a little bit later, and you know, freshly into my Criterion obsession, they added All About Eve to the collection and put it up on the channel. And I just kind of clicked on it. I'd seen its name mentioned in circles on the internet, on the subreddit. Uh, probably on people I follow on Letterboxd, like we're logging it because it is, I think, 96 on the top 250 narrative mm-hmm. films of all time letterbox list. Um, and yeah, I just remember kind of like my red shoes first viewing a bright, sunny summer's day and I'm just putting a movie on and it was absolutely wonderful. Uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't 
show my star rating on my log this time because it may change. But <gasps> but my first log of this film just basically was a four star uh, log that said, you know, this is an absolutely lovely picture and I still feel that way. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I definitely have more thoughts to share today. But Mackenzie... What is your history with Mankiewicz with All About Eve? Anything with Bette Davis you might have to share? I'd also be interested to hear. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Betty Davis is one of those people where it's like, you if you're interested in Hollywood at all, you know who Betty Davis is. I feel like most people our age, around this age, if they, if they know about her, they know about like uh, what I lovingly refer to as like her hag era, where like her and Joan Crawford were in whatever happened to baby Jane, which is like an iconic kind of queer cult film, like queer, you know, if you're a queer person, you've probably more so heard it in that context as like a drag Queens will perform it a lot. It's like the Joan Crawford and Betty Davis performances in that movie are very iconic for their, their camp quality. The refer. So that's like kind of how I knew about Betty Davis initially was just like being raised by gay people and then being a gay person I knew about this performance and I didn't really know her as the young glamorous academy award winning actress that she was for a very long time in the 30s and 40s um and then obviously you know more in the 30s I would say and then obviously this 1950 film that kind of brought her career back around um so I've known of her and obviously on my um old Hollywood love I've I've dove into in this last year or so I've She's been around a lot. Um, she was a Warner Brothers player back in the studio system, as was my man Humphrey Bogart. Mm. So I've actually weirdly seen a lot of her movies because um, her and Humphrey Bogart are in like five movies together. So, and weirdly, their characters do not interact pretty much ever. There's one great movie where he plays like a, she's like accused of murder. I forget the name of it, but she's she's like accused of murder, I think. And he plays like a knight, like a DA who's trying to save her. And like, that's the most they interact on screen. Um, but I've, yeah, I've watched her in Dark Victory semi-recently. That was a really, a really great film. Might've been an Academy Award nom for her where she plays like a woman who's slowly going blind. It's like very strange. Like I've been, I've been kind of seeing her randomly in pop up in the petrified forest, which is another really good role for her. Um, so I've watched a lot of kind of younger Betty Davis movies uh, recently because of my Bogart journey. And we'll talk about her more in all about Eve, but she is such a magnetic actress. Uh, I talked about it a bit on Magnolia about how, Philip Seymour Hoffman has it. Like when you're talking, thinking about it, right? When an actor is just sitting there, they're just sitting, saying nothing, doing nothing, but they have it. I don't know. You know, it's like one of those things that's hard to describe, but you know what I mean? Like he just has this magnetism, this energy, this talent that is just bubbling off of him and you can't take your eyes off of him. And I think Betty Davis similarly has it. Like she has such a, she's so interesting every time I see her on screen. Like she's got those Betty Davis eyes as I love the song. <laughs> I was waiting the title for it. Of, you know, Betty Davis eyes. Watch the final girls. I'm the one person <laughs> in the world that loves that movie and it uses that song uh, really beautifully. But um, yeah, like she just, you will talk about her eyes, but like, yeah, she's just this like magnetic force that like, there's a reason why she's one of the most iconic old Hollywood actresses to ever live. And it's because she was a ball busting, 
bitchy motherfucker mm-hmm. who was really, really good at her job. And uh, yeah, so that's kind of my history with Betty Davis is I've had a recent but like nice, fruitful history with her. Um, and Turner Mankiewicz, like he's a director whose name, again, you hear a lot. You hear in the same breath as Billy Wilder, as George Cukor, as these other directors who defined Hollywood at this time. Um, and I think that I just watched my very first Mankiewicz film actually let me look it up to make sure I'm not speaking incorrectly here. Uh, yeah, I just watched the Barefoot Contessa again on my my bogey mm. journey. Um, and while I thought the script of that film was a little weak, which Mankiewicz did write the script for that, which I think the script is very, very good. We'll talk about it. But um, the directing was beautiful. The Barefoot Contessa, I think, I think it just was balancing too many different genres in one film to not as much success as I think it it required to be a, a good movie. I gave it three stars. It's, it's a fine movie. Um, but the what, what really struck me about the Barefoot Contessa was the visuals. Like it is just a sumptuous, gorgeous, gorgeously shot film. And so, um, I yeah, I think that, that that was really the only time I've had to see, I've seen Mankiewicz as a director outside of just his iconic name. Uh, and then this is the second time I've seen his work. So that's kind of my history with both of these people. Both again, like the bogey journey pulled them into my lives. Uh, and I hope to continue these relationships and check out more of their work. And um, I'm really excited to talk about what they both did in this film, All About Eve. Well, before we get to that, the one thing I did want to like lead up with is an interesting conversation I had with my lovely partner because she watched this movie with me, which doesn't happen often for this podcast. Yeah. And it was really oh. fun, actually. I put the movie on at like 9 a.m. after I got home from walking the dog. Um, it's become my routine. You know, Rec and I and my dog, we get up, we go for a walk, and then I come home and maybe I put on a movie. And I love a great morning movie. And a movie like this, a movie from the 50s, old black and white classic. It's a great morning movie. And about 15 minutes in, after that opening sequence with all the different narrations, Frankie walks through the room and just got transfixed. It was one of those amazing moments where somebody walks by the TV, goes, huh, and just slinks onto the couch and just is transfixed. And I was like, all right, this will surely last 20 minutes. And then an hour and a half (laughs) goes by and she's watched nearly the entire movie, gets up, puts on some makeup, comes back to finish it with me. Um, which was a very, very, very exciting and pleasing. Uh, I I love movies so much, and Frankie does not love movies so much. So when Frankie sits down <laughs> and is entranced by a movie, it means so much to me, even if that movie is something I've never seen or is like a favorite. It doesn't matter what it is. Anyway, we're talking about it later, and um, she references some other movies that fall into this, you know, um, star is born or like you know i'm gonna pull the rug out from underneath the person on top and claim their spot stories like that trope and i was like if you think that's crazy you need to watch showgirls um (laughs) that's what this is and i was like uh you Uh, probably wouldn't like showgirls i was about to say imagining watching frankie watching showgirls i don't think that would go over very well at all but then she started to reference other films upon this and she was like well yeah well that's just a trope and i was like no you don't understand all about eve is the trope that is like that is the (laughs) that is the movie that is the movie about the young ingenue coming in and taking away the seasoned veterans crown and you know tossing her down the stairs (laughs) know me um but uh know me malone Malone. um but yeah i i just kind of wanted to say all that to lead 
this conversation with the legacy of this movie because it is so mm-hmm. interesting mm-hmm. that like we I don't know about you Mackenzie but as a as a young child you hear about Casablanca you you hear about yes. oh um double indemnity you hear about these other movies so much more often I'm not going to say that I never would have heard about all about Eve but I don't think it's the first thing from this era of Hollywood that people hear about. That being said, it's a legacy is undeniable because it has gone on to influence such great films as Showgirls. There are others, but I am blanking on them. I know I talked about it's them with like, Frankie this morning. Showgirls is like one to one yeah, it's all the about same Eve. Movie. And I was literally losing my mind that I'm like, it's the same movie. Yeah. But Paul Verhoeven made it a little bit more bi. And that's yeah. what I needed from All About Eve. Yeah. So... Uh, not it was this movie in 1950 was never going to be queer, but I did write right. in my notes at one point like Eve moving in the night they meet is like U-Haul lesbian yeah. with mommy <laughs> issues. Like, come on, Queen. Uh, no, I totally agree. I mean, like that's the thing is like you can reference all these films, but it's it it feels you know obviously we have not seen every movie on earth. There might be a movie before 1950 that deals with this, but not to this uh, level of popularity, right? Like this was like best picture at the academy awards this it was like i think it at the at the time set the record for the most nominations ever i think it's like maybe the only time four actresses have been nominated at the same time uh it's 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 a groundbreaking uh like record-breaking film and it does feel like it kind of is the origins of of the trope and and, and those movies you just mentioned also remind me like i think of sunset boulevard right Surely other films maybe told the stories in the same, in similar ways, but I feel like Sunset Boulevard popularized this. And this isn't a spoiler. This is how Sunset Boulevard starts. Popularized this, like, I bet you're wondering how I got here kind of thing. Cause yeah. the movie starts with our protagonist dead. And then we go to see how he became dead. Like that's obviously been a storytelling trope used a lot. And I feel like modern cinema, like there's these movies that like you watch that like seven samurai is one. And I can't wait to have you watching the show one day, but like many people cite seven samurai as like the movie that invented pretty much every team up movie to come after it, including the Avengers bugs. Life is literally seven samurai. Uh, Like these movies that are about a ragtag group of people coming together for a central cause. Seven samurai kind of invented that. Like, I think it's kind of interesting to look at these films that like began the thing right and it, it, it does feel interesting to see like the most the version of the kind of story that isn't winking at itself right like now that i've seen all about eve i can see that showgirls is winking at all about eve okay. but all about eve isn't winking at anything because it's just it is just the pure undiluted version of this story and yeah i think it's interesting to just see like i've been wanting to watch all about Eve for so long and it made me so happy to finally like know the the references and now i know where like all of this kind of came from like that's why i love movies and i love watching old movies because i love being able to to feel like i've widened my my view of the world a little bit more right that i've like learned a new thing and i now have this wider sphere of of knowledge to pull from with movies and uh yeah it's great i love when a movie that is uh, supposedly a classic you watch it and you're like oh without a shadow of a doubt this is a stellar like just un unquestionable like classic like i mean casablanca and double indemnity fall into this and they're films that when you watch them you're like 
someone could say, well, that's so cheesy. And it's like, no, it's not so cheesy because they're inventing this. And it is so amazing (laughs) and just so exhilarating. I was having the exact same experience as watching Mark Ruffalo and Jake Gyllenhaal try to track down the Zodiac Killer as I was watching everybody clue into what is going on with eve harrington like am i Mm. on the edge of my seat i am like squirming and there's like so many moments where i did this thing when i'm watching a movie that has like moments that are like like tense tense teetering on embarrassing like embarrassing teetering on tense i guess where it's like ooh, ah mm, don't do that and i just like squirm and i I'm so I'm so physical when it comes to like that kind of behavior from people, especially when I've seen a film before. So like rewatching this was so interesting because I knew what she was doing and I knew, mm-hmm. you know, the scene where Margot realizes that they're not going to make it back to the city in time for her performance and Karen yes. sinks into the chair of the car next to her because she realizes what she's done by siphoning gas out of the car and i'm just like oh no but you don't even understand like eve has called all these reporters and she's about to like upstage you completely and yeah i i don't know it's interesting and it was one of my main takeaways just how incredibly thrilling this movie about backstage drama in the theater world is yeah, I it's it's one of those movies where I I did know the twist, right? I guess like theoretically, if audiences were sitting down for the very first showings of this in nineteen you know forty nine, let's say, um, they had no way of knowing Eve was like the bad guy, right? Or like I mean, for the longest time when I heard the name of this movie, I thought Betty Davis was Eve. I just like assumed I was like I, I'd see the cover and it's Betty Davis, and I'm like that's Eve. So then I you know semi recently found out like oh that's the subversion right that she's not eve that's the kind of the subversion of the title of the film itself is that she's she's not eve but and 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 so because of that i did know she was gonna eve was gonna have this kind of villainous turn so i wish i had been able to watch it without knowing that because i think that her turn is so brilliantly done i think am baxter i believe right is who's playing eve she she plays the the shift in eve so Mm. well especially the scene where she like rips her wig off and oh my god hearing the tearing of that wig as me and rachel both grabbed our pearls we were like oh god don't (laughs) don't don't oh god don't rip that wig in half that's probably so expensive um but like she's playing this turn really really excellently but what i love is because her performance is so good even though i knew she was going to have this turn i still bought into it right like her first kind of monologue where she's like basically like here's my whole life and margo is my reason for living one i cannot imagine like being margo and being and hearing this girl be like i you're my whole reason for being alive right now uh very intense but like she is her story of how she fell in love with performing is reminds me of my own story reminds me of how I saw a play and I saw that one actress that made me think I could do that too like I saw it was very silly you know I saw Hairspray and it was my favorite musical at the time and I saw Penny Pingleton and I was like that character is me and I want to play that character I did eventually one day play play Penny Pingleton but I was 14 and I got in my grandmother's car afterward and I was bawling my eyes out and I was like I'm just so happy right now like I've never been happier my whole life. And my Mm. grandmother was like, you could do that. Just, just do that. You could be an actor. And like, that's what it is, right? It's that moment when you fall in love and you realize you're at a place where you were meant to be, at least maybe for some portion of your life. I would like to get back to the theater eventually and 
and recapture that love. But like I was listening to Eve talk about it and I know it's fake because I, Mackenzie, know the story, the story's going to go, but you really buy into it. You really buy into this like innocence and this love and this passion because right when you're a Margot or you're, um, I forget, or, you know, you're a Karen or the, the director whose name I can't remember, is it Bill or Lloyd, the two men that are there, um, you know, when you've been in this business for a long time, you're a bit more grizzled, you're a bit more rough edged. You don't have this youthful love for the art anymore. And I think they, they, they fall into that because they feel invigorated by this sort of, to them, pure love of theater. Um, I don't know. So I, like, I think it's interesting that you can still know that how she's going to be, but you still, the performance is so good. You still fall into it. I think, you know? Yeah. I mean, Ann Baxter is so charismatic and so sweet and so earnest. And there's a, there's a touch of naivete to her performance as well. Like she's kind of playing it a little simple and a little like dumb. And then Betty Davis is so acid tongued and so cocksure. And like, I love how you put it. She just has the thing. She's got it. Um, She's a, she's a magnet. That woman is a, you know, the, a magnet the size of a building. She just attracts anything within <laughs> miles. She's phenomenal. She has amazing piercing eyes and just the most intense brooding lower, like, like jaw oh, and raspy lips. voice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> funny side note is uh, Frankie, when she starts smoking the cigarette in the bed while talking to Bill on the telephone, she's like, ew, that's got to smell so bad. I was like, sweetheart, everything everything smelled like cigarettes in the 50s like oh, you yeah. just didn't yeah you could not distinguish your bed from your room from your car from the outside world <laughs> <laughs> anyway um yeah i mean it is so interesting to what you're talking about you feel so bad for her when betty davis is really laying it on before the party i love my favorite moment in the movie is when bill is going to go get margo a martini, very dry, and asks what Eve will have. And Margot just goes, a milkshake. And just like, <laughs> you know, taunting her. She's like, you're you're a kid. Whereas previously she's been telling Bill to stop calling her a kid because he's like, um, he's neutering her. He's like making her non-threatening. Like, it's just a kid. Mm-hmm. No, she is a fully grown woman with aims and means and a conniving spirit, you know? Um, which I think is really interesting because this film actually, this film not like on its face and not very pointedly is like a takedown of how women are treated in entertainment. It's very, very, very obviously about the age old like cliche of like once you turn 40 in the entertainment industry, you're damaged goods. You're no longer useful. Like that is like, that is in the text. That is what this film is about through and through. It even Mm -hmm. mirrors Betty Davis's own career. And we can talk yes. about that. But what I think is even more interesting and more nuanced and less in your face is just how how Bill doesn't see Eve as a threat because she's just a young, pretty face. Like, who's not 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 going to be an actress? She just wants to help out Margot. Whereas Margot can see through it. Obviously, with the true help of real MVP Birdie, uh, she can mm-hmm. see through. Queen. Yeah, Queen Birdie. We love. We stand a legend. Um, <laughs> she, uh, Bertie and Margot, that's my ship. Okay. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> they should be, they should be married and in love. All right. Yeah. Fuck Bill. Um, 
Fuck but Bill. you know, she can see through Eve's bullshit in a way because who knows? Maybe she pulled the same crap herself. But also, I think there's just maybe an understanding there between women. I wouldn't know honestly. You might be able to offer your insight, <laughs> as I am not, nor have I ever been a woman. But I think it. it I think there's just more than the turn forty, you're done like commentary about women in entertainment. I think there's a lot more. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I even have fully formed thoughts on that. Like, yeah, I do think that there is like a meta layer, right. To Betty Davis's career having struggled a lot um, as she was entering later years in her life. 40 is not old at all to me, um, but I understand that that is old to Hollywood. Right. And I think that that's still something that women are combating in Hollywood today. I think there is still an obsession of youth. Something that's been really bothering me lately is like, Meg Ryan, who is returning to films, and I'm super, super, super excited about it. She's directing a yes. rom-com, and she's returning. Um, people have been really, really weird about her face because she's had some work done. But it's like, you don't realize, the people who are like commenting on the way she looks don't realize that they are part of the problem, right? Like these actresses feel the need to get work done to stay young because people like you talk about the way they look. And so it is this vicious cycle, right? And so I think that it, like that, I think plastic surgery has definitely changed the conversation about the way we view youth, especially as it relates to actresses. But I was thinking about this recently because um, I love Katherine Hepburn. I've talked about her uh, a bit on other podcasts. I was thinking about it recently. She's an interesting actress, right? She was also kind of labeled box office poison for a while and had to make multiple kind of comebacks in her career. But she's, you know, the actress who has won the most Academy Awards, I think, out of any actress uh, who ever has lived. Um, Kate Blanchett might rival her one day, which will be ironic since she won an Academy <laughs> Award for playing <laughs> Catherine Hepburn. But um, yeah. three, three of her four Academy Awards came when she was like in her 60s like she won majority of her academy awards in these twilight years of her life giving i think stunning performances i mean the line in winter is genuinely one of my favorite performances i've ever seen anyone give on screen ever Catherine hepburn is mind-blowing in that film luke is coming to dinner these amazing late career performances but i was thinking the other day like she's really the only actress from that era i can think of who had a career into that part of her life like a lot of the actresses who came up with her including betty davis petered off kind of i think by the time they were getting into their 60s and betty davis was able to spin that into as i referred to earlier kind of hag era she was doing a lot of like kind of weird like exploitation -y films that kind of i think you know was the height of it was whatever happened to baby jane but that's not really for me again yes i'm glad she was still working but not as um dignified i guess that i yeah. that i think it was like her caliber deserved at that point in her career mm -hmm. and so yeah, I was thinking about that recently when I was thinking about Catherine Hepper and like a lot of their contemporaries did not have careers later in life. You know, they were still around, they were still presenting at the Oscars, they were still respected, but they weren't getting jobs. And it's like, why weren't these women who were these iconic actresses of this era, you know, unable to work past 40, right? And so I think that that like, it feels really pertinent for Betty Davis and for her era in particular of actresses. Cause I think of my man Bogey, who was like on his deathbed looking ancient as hell and still acting love the man, but he was very sick and old near the end of his life. Still, you know, never really had uh, other than like needing to stop for his health. Didn't really have that much of a slip up once Casablanca hit. It was just like, his career is made for the rest. And he was Casablanca hit when he was like entering his forties. Right. So his career took off when he, when he was reaching of this age. And so there's, you know, there's, there's that dissonance. There's that, um, 
oh, I can't think of the word, you know, I mean, misogyny, but like, you know, that double standard uh, against men and women in Hollywood. And so I think that I think it's brave and interesting of All About Eve to tackle it in such a blunt way, because I do think it is actively talking about the people who belong to the institutions that were watching this film. That makes sense. Yeah. And I mean, credit to Mankiewicz, because Mankiewicz, I think, was known for writing, if not complicated, interesting female characters, which I think is you know it's part of what you're talking about uh, one of the big things i think is that parts for women are already somewhat good parts for women are already somewhat sparse to begin with a lot of our films are about boys and men's and fathers and sons and if anything maybe fathers and daughters um you know i and so that's even before you start talking about the age thing and then parts for older women are much fewer and farther between which is sad and upsetting because one of the best films of recent years was about a elder asian immigrant to the united states and her struggles and i know a lot of older women who saw everything everywhere all at once as a Mm -hmm. really beautiful film about their experience a lot of women i know read that film as a tale about menopause um Mm -hmm. And, you know, coming into your own in your older age. Um, so, like, it's 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 not that there are not people who need these stories. I think time and time again, people are realizing that when they make a movie for women, maybe older women, uh, book club, uh, 80 for Brady, that I mean, people go Barbie. and see it. Barbie is definitely a movie I feel yeah. like is was marketed towards young women but i think for me i think it works better for moms and like yeah. older women i think it's more of a resonant thematically with with that group of women so like and it's the biggest movie of the year so yeah. like and so i just think it is interesting that like mankowitz was the one writing this picture and also he wanted to write a story about an older actress uh who was supposedly not in her prime and it's somewhat critical i this movie's no film noir and it's you know definitely no david fincher film but it's very dark and that's what I was saying up top that I was struck by something different this time. My original thought on this film was like, what a lovely film. Just, Oh my gosh, what fluff, what, what, what fun entertainment for me. Um, (laughs) No, but no, it was like, it was much more interesting and intricate this time. And I was really struck by how dark and scathing this movie was just of entertainment in general. Obviously it's very Mm -hmm. specific to the theater industry in New York city, but it felt very broad. I think it was intended that way. I think that's why it was such a huge success at the time as it was. Um, But I just find it interesting that, you know, a middle-aged white guy was writing the story about the troubles of women at different ages in the entertainment industry as he saw them. I'm sure there's more nuance that a woman could have provided while writing this script. Nonetheless, I think it's very impressive. And I think you wanted to talk about the script. The script is as 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 a podcaster i'm not very fond of one said sean fennessy this script is a cartier diamond like <laughs> it's amazing yeah i i mean that's probably my last large point is the script because i think the script is stunning i mean i'm looking at my notes and there's two sequences that i think just illustrate how tight and and like intelligent and interesting the script is and again like there's something about an old Hollywood script that just hits. I think that's why people love Billy Wilder movies because like there's something about the way that man writes that is just pure genius. And this movie, 
I think has a stunning script and I, I love the confrontation with Lloyd in the theater, right? With all playwrights should be dead for 300 years. That confrontation with Lloyd fiery it directly into this like proposal scene with Bill, this like on the set of the play leaving, you know, leaving Margot in tears on the set, which is like beautiful imagery and like metaphors on metaphors of itself. This, like this kind of box of, of that she's put herself in the story that she's living within I loved that sequence, but what really, I was like, what got me hype was the restaurant scene into that bathroom scene with Karen mm. and Eve, like the, the restaurant energy. I mean, the, the fourth and at the table is, is just so good. It's just, they're, they're just rocketing off these lines so quickly. And then into that bathroom scene, which for me was just some of the most tense, incredible, uh, scene work in the movie between, between Karen and Eve. And then I, Addison, who we haven't even talked about, who he was, okay, weirdly, four women nominated for Academy Awards for this. None of them fucking won. But the actor who played Addison won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. And you know what? Do you wonder why? Really good performance. Yeah. Really, really good performance. Yeah. And he's, I wrote him in that final scene with Eve where he is laying her the fuck out. He is like, look, bitch, I know your whole fucking life and I'm going to tell you, tell it to you now, queen. He was reading as gay for me, kind of queer coded, like bitchy. Like he's kind of her GBF for a while being like, "Ooh, you're such a bitch. I love it. Like he's kind of giving like he loves how mean and shitty Eve is. But then eventually he's like, but how does this benefit me? So I'm going to lay you the fuck out, bitch. Like I loved Addison as a character. We haven't really talked about him, but like he's really, really, I think, amazing at that end part. And the writing in that scene is amazing. And the way that they both play it and the way Mankiewicz has them moving around the space while Eve is like destroying the room as her own sense of self is sort of crumbling. Like that for me was like the scene where like the directing and the writing combined into something really phenomenal. So like, yeah, that was my last huge point was just like Mankiewicz's work on this is a, is a brilliant, really, really great job. No, I'm, I'm so happy you brought it up and phrased it as you did. Cause like, yeah, it, it, it is it's almost like uh it's like a it's like Phoebe Bridgers album. That's a that's a singer songwriter's <laughs> album. That is a, you know, from conception to final product, their vision. This is a writer director's film. Like absolutely taking nothing away from Betty Davis, from uh Ann Baxter. Uh yeah. Mm-hmm. Taking nothing away from them. Uh he's all over this thing and it's really interesting. I'm not a Joseph Mankiewicz uh, completionist or like mega fan i've seen two other of his movies but the exactly what you're talking about like the way that it's staged and the blocking and the way that they maneuver these spaces is incredibly intricate and well executed so much to the point that when there's that that one shot of the car rolling around along the snowy countryside i was like this feels wrong this isn't in a sound stage this isn't like <laughs> hermetically controlled which i like about this movie i love this about these old hollywood movies casablanca is the same way double indemnity is this to the nth degree it's like this mm. feels like a sound stage and i don't hate it this feels like a you know a set that if i looked behind one of these walls it would just be scaffolding and i love it the artificiality doesn't uh, detract from anything in fact it's the it's almost the inverse it's not artificiality at a point it's it's theatrics it's staging it's drama um which is so perfectly um is is, is perfect for this film about theatrics about drama about mm -hmm. the theater yeah 
Yeah, no, I really, it's so funny you said that. I, when I, I talked about it on ADP, but I saw Key Largo in the theaters yeah. uh, from 1948. I found out afterward that that movie was shot on a soundstage and my jaw hit the floor and went through the the core of the, <laughs> to the core of the earth. That's how f- deep and profoundly my jaw dropped because mm. like, I, I mean, John Huston is just doing brilliant work in that movie at building atmosphere and using sound and lights and sets to like build an atmosphere to where like, they were they literally are on a boat at one point and i guess they were filming that in a pool and they were just using fog to obfuscate the like buildings that were around the pool never in 100 million years could i have told you that was a pool like i think that's like there's this innovation right that that comes from like a lot of the people who are making these movies around this time came from theater uh and that's a whole other conversation that me and rachel were having like about like Betty Davis has like theater acting skills, like this ability to be so present and so uh, locked into something comes from like an era, a generation of actors who came from the theater, which like nowadays I think people can jump straight to film more often than not, which mm. I think is a detriment. Like there's a reason why sometimes people are like, why are British actors so good? And it's like, cause they're, they're slumming it over in the theater scene in London. And then they, they can bring it to the screen in a way that feels really unique. And so I think Betty Davis has that, but that's a whole other thing. But yeah. like, yeah, maybe there's this ingenuity that comes with soundstage films that, like, I still felt, like, really, yeah, immersed and amazing. And then it also makes those shots where, like, when Eve or when Margot is pulling up and you do get that, like, external New York City shot, like, it's so, like, look, it like, it's it's more interesting because we're finally breaking out of the artifice for a minute to see, like, the city. And it feels like this time capsule of, of, of New York in a way that's, like, really cool. So, like, yeah, I just, I find it really immersive, really interesting. Yeah, I mean not to be like you on a recent ADP and also be old man yelling at cloud, but they they don't make them like this anymore. And that's fine. And that's okay. Like they make movies differently now and computers and special effects are different. Computers exist. Sorry. Special effects are different now, but this movie and others we have mentioned is like that, 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 saying you know it's the magic of the movies it's movie magic um and every time i watch like one of these films from this era one of these classics you know uh it's like i just want to watch more of these you joked last episode about this is a part in a running series of getting ian to watch movies from before 1966 (laughs) or something and i was like yeah i mean i don't seek them out but every time one's put in front of me i'm like oh uncut let me snort this let me inject it into my veins it's <laughs> so good and it's unlike uh unlike a uh you know silence or a solaris or stalker or even a i don't know um king of comedy another recent watch um unlike those films where I'm like, I want to think and I want to feel deeply and I'm being, you know, so pretentious, but I'm not pretentious because it's just what I like. These movies are just like, ah, movies. Oh my God. Like I love movies. I've loved them since I was a kid. And these remind me that like, I still love movies and they just make me feel so happy and good. Even though there's as much emotional and psychological depth to All About Eve as any of those other movies I've mentioned. It's just about different things and it's executed in a very different way. That also gives me that little tingle in my brain. I mean, here's the thing I have learned 
recently because if you're listening to this podcast it's revolving around the criterion collection right and if you're listening to this podcast and you're watching the movies along with us you probably have similar tastes to us or at least interested in these types of films and i think that like to like these types of films there is a level of pretension and i don't think that's a bad thing i think that like there's too many other people out in the world who are like completely fine with like eating slop as i refer to it sometimes which can be fun it's fun to eat slop sometimes and fun to watch reality tv and fun to watch movies that don't challenge you but also to a complete and utter refusal to engage deeper with film sometimes i feel like uh it can be a detriment to the human experience and expanding your worldview and expanding your your own sense of self and so i think that like a level of pretension is something that i have learned that like i am proud of that i am proud that like I want to discover films that challenge me and interest me and change my worldview a little bit. Uh, and so I am at the point where I've like fully come around that I do not think like, I think there is like a way to be too pretentious, but I think that a, a certain level of pretension makes a good critic and makes a good consumer of art. And I am unashamed of it. And I think about like the modern day equivalent of the soundstage is the bubble, right? These like green screen yeah. bubbles that feel lifeless and even though there is artifice in these sound stages, there is still like, there's a table that Betty Davis is sitting at. She can touch that and it's real. Right. Like, I think that that's, what's missing right from the current day equivalent is like when they're, these people are on green screens, you can tell they're just not even in the same room. Uh, And so, and that's like what the modern day equivalent is. And so I don't know, I'm sure that's a whole other podcast episode and we're already over an hour into this, but I, I don't think I have I do not think a level of pretension is a bad thing to have. In fact, I think it makes you uh, a smarter and more open person to art. Yeah. No, I thank you. Thank you, Mackenzie, for absolving me. <laughs> I will um, be an old man shaking my fist at a cloud every day of my <laughs> damn life if it means yeah. I can maybe convince people to watch an old movie every once in a while. Watch a movie that has subtitles every once in a while. Challenge yourself. Love yourself a little bit more and engage in these things that might open your world up. And there's just something so amazing about seeing the past uh, in your living room on the big silver screen. Like these movies are time capsules of our culture and they'll only be as old as the late 1800s, but it's still something so special to see the 50s or the late 40s more so, because that's when this was made, encapsulated in a story like this. Just the culture, the time, the place, the people. Yeah, I mean, uh, on top of everything we talked about, this is also just such a beautifully gorgeous film to look at. It's, 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 I light up when we get that first shot of Ann Baxter rising to accept the award in the prologue, and she's just beaming. Mm-hmm before we know everything that's happened to her in the preceding months, year, maybe. I don't know. But it, yeah, I mean, there is just, there's, there's a special sauce to movies from this era. So, you know, continue to make me watch as many movies from this era <laughs> as possible. It, I, I, I think I've said it already on this episode, but I will say it again, and I'll continue to say it every time I watch a movie like this, whether it be this, Casablanca, Dumbbell Indemnity, uh five graves to cairo or oh i don't know um ah what's another movie that's not one of the main ones uh it doesn't matter to be or not to be we just watched to, to be, be or, or not, not to be, to be. Blew yes. both of our minds yeah yeah they make me want to seek out these more like i am on such a high right now i could keep going with the 50s and before for like a while i'm, th- I'm so jazzed up about golden age hollywood at the moment 
I love it. I you love it. You want me to tell Lloyd I think you should play it? If you told him so, he'd give me the part. He said he would. After all you've said, don't you know that part was written for Margot? It might have been 15 years ago. It's my part now. You talk just as Addison said you did. Cora is my part. You've got to tell Lloyd it's for me. I don't think anything in the world would make me say that. Addison wants me to play it. Over my dead body. That won't be necessary. Addison knows how Margot happened to miss that performance. How I happened to know she'd miss it in time to call him and notify every paper in town. It's quite a story. Addison could make quite a thing of it. Imagine how snide and vicious he could get and still tell nothing but the truth. I had a time persuading him. You better sit down. You look a bit wobbly. If I play Cora, Addison will never tell what happened, in or out of print. A simple exchange of favors. I'm so happy I can do something for you at long last. Your friendship with Margot. Your deep, close friendship. What would happen to it, do you think, if she knew the cheap trick you'd played on her for my benefit? You and Lloyd. How long, even in the theater, before people forgot what happened and trusted you again? No. Well, Ian, how about we shift into our final thoughts? I want to know how jazzed up you are about All About Eve specifically. Oh, beautiful segue, as always. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've pretty much said it all. And I think this has been a really interesting conversation because of the many twists and turns it has taken. Um, but yeah, I mean, I initially really liked this film. I gave it four stars on Letterboxd. And I just wrote that it was very nice. It's it's almost light entertainment as I saw it then. And something that you and I talk about a lot on this show and off this show is how we evolve as movie watchers and we our taste evolve and our ability to recognize tropes, uh, filmmaking language and style and tone evolves. And I'm so different now. And this was such a interesting film to revisit because like I said, I was peering deeper into the seedier aspects of all about Eve and I was so affected by the by the storytelling, both visual and performance-wise. Mm-hmm. I was just so bewitched by both Baxter and Davis. They were just lighting up the screen, giving me like rushes of adrenaline at this story. Um, and just the way that they were able to capture these opposing forces, a young ingenue and an older veteran of the theater. And I, I was just so compelled by it um, and just, yeah, riveted. Uh, I'm upping from four stars to five stars, Mackenzie. <gasps> Whoa, yeah. I was this right a, at the top. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this is an amazing film uh, up there with the likes of two other movies whose names I've said at least five times during this episode, Double Indemnity <laughs> by the great Billy Wilder and, and Casablanca by the great Michael Curtis. Um, yeah, I just think it deserves to be more widely recognized with the greats as it is, I think, becoming more so in the past couple decades. But yeah, this is this is this is this is pure uncut diamonds. Like this is this is a great, great fucking movie. I loved it. Thank you for bringing it to the table. And now, Mackenzie, of course. You having seen it for the very first time, I am dying to know what your final thoughts and star rating are. 
Yeah, I also think I've said like so much this episode, so I don't have a lot of uh, extra final thoughts. I do want to shout out Marilyn. We didn't really talk about her. Marilyn shows up for like oh five gosh. seconds. Um, yeah, we didn't talk about her, but we Frankie, love Marilyn. We, Frankie we saw Marilyn and was like, is that Marilyn Monroe? <laughs> and I was like, yep. <laughs> there she is. Uh, the queen. We love her. Um, hopefully we'll talk about her again on a future Some Like It Hot episode. Speaking of Billy Wilder, that'd be an amazing episode to talk about. Um, but no, I, you know, I think I didn't talk about it in the episode. There was like a moment when I was getting to when I was at the like the dinner scene where I was like this is feeling a little long and it was like but then like from then on like I loved that last like 20-25 minute stretch but like there was like a bit in the middle where I felt like I was it was losing steam for me a little bit and I gotta be real I was maybe under the influence of some of some legal substances so I did write in my notes it feels long. Maybe I'm high. <laughs> I, I couldn't quite really figure out like if like if if it was me or if it was the movie. So I think I ended up landing around four and a half. Obviously, a big fat heart. I could see that easily going up to five on a rewatch. I just felt like in the moment I was like I'm feeling a little like my steam is is lessening here. I'm wanting the story to get moving a little faster. And then obviously, like we hit that bathroom scene, and like from then on, it's like banger scene after banger scene that like takes you into that great ending where like the cycle is continuing right we didn't really talk about that but eve has a oh, young gosh. fan that breaks into her home and she's like yeah you could stay here like okay girl like very hilarious that she can't see her own ploys being used against her and we kind of end on this note of the cycle is repeating itself and that's this will always just be the cyclical nature of hollywood and then the venomous nature of it um so again, like from that point to the end, I was like, yes, but there was like a, there was a bit in the middle where I felt like I was losing steam a bit and it didn't quite hit me as like an all time five banger. Um, but again, I think it's a movie that I could see getting there. I just got to give it more time. Maybe I need to grow up a little bit more. I need to like change. I need to, I need to give it a year and then maybe revisit it. So that's my goal. But I mean, it's an amazing movie. I would call it an almost perfect movie for me at the moment. Um, and could very well be in 365 calendar days, be a perfect movie. But I, I guarantee you, you have my word. I'm going to give it another shot next year. I am a testament to the fact that it is even better on a rewatch. It can um, grow on you. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 It's so good. Um, when you bring up the ending though i failed to mention we're watching the ending and i start making all these weird just like giggly noises at the ending and frankie was like what's up and i was like it's so poetic <laughs> it's like poetry <laughs> it rhymes yeah so good well that's all about eve um mackenzie do we have any emails or voicemails today we do not, but if you want to email us about All About Eve or anything we've talked about before, our West, our Bad Dad trilogy, uh, you know, it crested us over 25 episodes. So that's exciting. We are a quarter of the way to a to the big hundy. Uh, so if you want to message us about anything we've talked about before, about the Dad Dad Bad Dad trilogy, about All About Eve or whatever, Ian will be shortly telling us we're talking about next week in connection to All About Eve. You can email us at thecriterionconnection at gmail.com and we'll, we'll share your voicemails and your letters on the air. But Ian, I need to know, I do know, but you need to let the audience know what we're going to be watching in connection to All About Eve, our, our, our latest double feature. We're back to our, to our, normal, our normal double feature. Yes, and uh, I'm so excited to tell you because this is a film I thought you might have seen and I was really surprised when I found out that you hadn't seen it. So when you decided to pick All About Eve, I knew exactly what I had to pick. It's a film that falls into this trope that we've been talking about. In fact, I know I was referencing a conversation I had with my partner, Frankie, 
near the top of the show where it was like she was like talking about all these movies that uh you know have the same trope young ingenue comes in and takes pedestal away from you know veteran actress and upstages her and she mentioned this film and i was like you know what you're so smart that's the film i'm connecting to all about eve and that film is a veteran actress comes face to face with an uncomfortable reflection of herself when she agrees <laughs> to take part in a revival of the play that launched her career 20 years ago. Shamefully short synopsis letterbox, but the film that we are watching is Oliver Asias's 2014 film, The Clouds of Sils Maria, starring the wonderful Juliette Binoche and Kastu herself. Um, there's a little bit of a uh, lesbian tinge to this story. Oh, you know, uh, that's what I need, baby. <laughs> you know, that's what I'm looking for in my movies. There's some queerness in this. I have seen most of it. I did not <gasps> finish it my first watch. You DNF'd so this will, it? I didn't DNF it so much as life got in the way. You know how okay, it goes. Okay. I know, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. but yes, next week we are going to be diving back kind of into world cinema. This is an English language film made by a renowned French auteur, Mia Hansen Love's ex-husband. And uh yeah, we're gonna be what? Yeah, they were married of a uh oh. <laughs> I did a, not uh, know that. International art house cinema power couple once upon a time. Holy uh, shit. Okay, wow. Asias and Asias. Oliver Asias and Mia Hansen Love no longer together, but we are going to be doing our first Asias and I'm very excited, but yeah. Uh, and hey, you can stream this on the Criterion channel, or if you don't have the Criterion channel, you can watch it for free on Tubi, apparently. So that's fun. Yeah, no, very accessible. Otherwise, as we always encourage our audience to do, if you don't have streaming services, check out a copy from your local library. This is a very widely available film. I think it had a lot of Oscar buzz back in the day, and I know plenty of people who are not into what we are into, Mackenzie, who have seen it, so... I'm excited to get our takes. But that is it from me. Anything else, Mackenzie? Nothing for me. Well, then, until then. See you next time on the Criterion Connection.